Welcome back, U.S. History. So we left off with part one of Vietnam, and we talked about how the United States got involved and some of the uh, precursors leading up to it all, and talked about fighting against the Viet Cong, the whole 17th parallel, guerrilla warfare, the Tet Offensive, and that's kind of where we left off. Obviously, I'm leaving out some other stuff, but if you want to know more, listen to part one again, or for the first time. I don't know why you'd be listening to this one without listening to the first one. Anyhow, so uh, we left off with the Tet Offensive and said how that was kind of the beginning of the end for the United States' involvement with the whole Vietnam War. And another um, significant event, we're going to call it, it's not a battle, was the My Lai Massacre. So after the brutality uh, of the fighting that went on with the Tet Offensive, many GIs, government issues, or you know, the soldiers, were under a great deal of stress. And kind of the culmination of all this stress happened at the My Lai Massacre. And United States intelligence had reports stating that My Lai, this little village, was sheltering around 250 members of the Viet Cong. So... We sent U.S. soldiers there to go check this out. And we got there. We didn't find any soldiers. We found women, children, and old men, around 400 people. So Lieutenant William L. Calley Jr. was the guy in charge. And he rounded up everyone in the village and just started shooting them all. And he would have continued and succeeded in wiping out this village, basically, if it weren't for a U.S. um, helicopter pilot who kind of saw what was going on. And he landed and trained his guns on the American soldiers and basically just said, stop. Um, So, yeah, you kind of get the idea here. So, um, now, if you you remember kind of the backtrack of all this, this leading up to this terrible event, there's just a whole bunch of stuff going on that kind of led us to this war and, and got everyone involved and sometimes people against their will with the whole you know, draft and this um, also known as the Selective Service Act. And all this stress and all this mandatory military service and just everything had its effect for sure. And it had its effect not only with the My Lai Massacre on the soldiers but also at home in the United States. So the Selective Service Act, which allowed the government to draft young men ages 18 to 26, all right, a lot of people didn't want to go to war. They didn't want to be forced into doing this. And so we saw people trying to get out of the draft, and some of them did it by moving to different countries. They were known as draft dodgers. Some people were known as conscientious objectors, and these are people who opposed fighting in the war on moral and or religious reasons or grounds. Some people were granted official deferments, and it's an official postponement, um, in order for them to attend college. Trouble is, if you didn't have money to go to college, it was going to be difficult for you to get a a postponement for that. So, um, yeah, some things are not going well in the United States. There's a lot of, you know, kind of sentiment towards going to war and everything. Now... This is ongoing throughout the war. And remember, we said that this war spans several different presidents. So when Johnson decided he was not going to run for another term, he was not going to seek re-election, Nixon finally saw a chance where he thought he could win. And he did. Nixon became president in 1969. And again, in the year 3000, if you're a fan of Futurama. So Nixon, kind of taking over towards the end of the Vietnam War, he has a new plan called Vietnamization. 
And basically it calls for removing American troops and replacing them with South Vietnamese troops. We're going to train them to take our place. All right. Now, during all this time, protests had turned violent back home in the United States. And we even kind of had some homegrown terrorists, terrorists known as the Weather Underground. They were probably the most prominent. Now, this, this kind of like culture that was against the administration or whatever, against the government, we kind of saw this counterculture emerge known um, as the 60s and into 70s known as the, the hippies. And a hippie is a member of this counterculture, originally a youth movement that started in the United States and also in the United Kingdom uh, during the mid-60s and then spread to other countries as well. And a lot of these people would drop out of society. They don't want to conform, man. Don't make me listen to your so-called rules. Um, there was also often drug experimentation going on. They would live in these communes, not all of them, but some of them would live in these communes. And it's a large gathering of people sharing a common life. And one of the biggest hippie events took place in 1969, which was Woodstock. And it was a musical festival, and it was kind of in response to all the violence of the entire decade. And this weekend was supposed to be this anti-establishment, you know, anti-violence of the war and everything. And it was a weekend that promised peace and love. And you can't tell, but I am putting up the peace sign, man. All right, now, not all protests or counterculture protests or whatever were seen as you know peaceful and so forth there was one protest that turned fairly ugly and that happened here in ohio at kent state university and this was in 1970 protesters had been throwing rocks and they also burned down an army rotc building or reserve officers training corps and so the governor uh, called in the national guard and the guard started to throw tear gas into this to disperse the crowd. And eventually they opened fire, killing four and wounding nine. Well, this uh, did not go well. And it um, encouraged a lot of people around the country to kind of take place in their own protest stuff. So bottom line, uh, the Vietnam War is not a favorable war. The people back home in the United States are not all about this war anymore. Vietnamization is going on, but maybe it's not 100% working. So finally in 1973, we have full American withdrawal of troops. And the peace treaty was signed, where else? In France, Paris. So the U.S. Um, had to be out in 60 days. That was one of these stipulations. Prisoners of war had to be released on both sides. Mostly it was American POWs that were being held. Uh, there was going to be no more troops, and this is American troops for the most part, in Laos and Cambodia. Because when we were pursuing the Vietnamese, or Viet Cong, we were heading into Laos and Cambodia. And this was kind of known as an incursion, and we weren't allowed to do that. So we had to bring all of our troops home um, from those areas as well. And the 17th parallel that separated North and South Vietnam would remain until the country could be reunited which it was two years later in 1975 when the South fell to the North. And still to this day, Vietnam is one of the last countries that is still a communist country. 
Now, so real quick, before we're we call it a day here on um, Vietnam and whatnot, kind of I want to kind of backtrack um, just a couple of years. Because I know I was just talking here in 1975, you know, so we're going to go back to June 17, 1972. Um, we'll Five men were soon. arrested so, for breaking into so the DNC, and have a the Democratic National the Committee's day, headquarters morning, at the Watergate complex. To this. Some of you have heard of the Watergate scandal. Well, that's what we're getting into. So, anyhow, we arrested these guys and kind of some interesting circumstances there. These guys had you know, broken in. They have flashlights. If you've seen Forrest Gump, there's a scene where Forrest called. He's staying at this hotel and he calls up the head off and says, I think there's a uh, fuse broken because there's these guys with flashlights uh, down down in another room. Well, that was a reference to Watergate. Um, to give you the real story, on you know, these guys, these five guys that broke in, kind of a funny little story that goes along with it. They had put tape over the lock on the door so that the lock would not shoot out and lock them out or in or anything. Well, one of the security guards that was working at Watergate Complex saw this, took off the tape, and somehow these guys still managed to get back in. But, I mean, they should have been caught about two or three times, but anyhow, they did catch them by about the third or fourth time there. Anyhow, so these guys that are going into this DNC, you know, headquarters thing, well, eventually, we don't I mean, I guess no 100%. They were going through documents and whatnot, but we're not 100% sure what they were going for, I guess. And we found some money that they had with them, and this money was actually linked to a slush fund that was used by CREEP, C-R-E-E-P, which stands for, wait for it, Committee for the Re-Election of the President. So here we have these guys doing bad things that are connected to the president. So... This isn't good for Nixon. So, of course, an investigation goes on. So, we have investigative committees that are looking into all this information. And we basically say, look, we need to know more. So, we start investigating the president. And it turns out that the president has set up a whole bunch of microphones and recording devices within the White House. Well, of course, everyone wants to know what's on these tapes. So, a subpoena is finally issued and Nixon reluctantly hands over these tapes. And, of course, we found tons of information that was not beneficial to Nixon. We found the smoking gun conversation kind of thing. But maybe one of the most interesting things that was found was what was not found. One of the tapes had 18 and a half minutes of missing tape. We don't really know what was on there, but let your imagination run wild. So, anyhow, this whole ordeal became known as the Watergate Scandal. And as the committees were investigating everything and information is being, you know, received and so forth, information is also going to the press and to the public. And there was one informant that was kind of uh, talking exclusively to two members of the Washington Post. And this informant got the nickname or code name of Deep Throat. Well, at this point, with all this information going out there and whatnot, Nixon is facing almost certain impeachment at this point, where he will be, you know, put on trial, found guilty, and kicked out of office. So he decides to beat them to it, and he resigns on August 9th, 1974. Now, that doesn't mean he couldn't have been tried um, as a civilian or anything after that. Um, however, uh, Gerald Ford, vice president, now president, gives him a full pardon, so uh, there, he is excused of all criminal action after that point. So, we're going to kind of stop there today. Um, our next podcast is going to kind of pick up um, into the kind of, you know, bringing us up to modern day time and 
um, will get there soon. So thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of the day, evening, morning, whatever time it is that you're listening to this. Thanks so much for listening.